the second time that the hand was ungloved by um, the Sherpa that had climbed with me before. And uh, he, he took the gloves off and he looked at it and I was I had my eyes closed and he said, Doctor, you need a doctor. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I knew it was pretty bad at that point if the Sherpas were getting concerned. Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. I'm your host for today, Dr. Fionn Davis, emergency medicine doctor and expedition doctor. Today, we are taking you to the extremes of altitude, the highest place on earth, Mount Everest. Building on our previous podcast with Dr. Benjamin Alba, talking about his experience of being a base camp medic, um, we're talking to Dr. Gabby Nell in this little Everest mini series. And in May this year, Gabby became the youngest doctor and the youngest South African woman to summit Everest, just nine days after her 25th birthday. It's a fantastic story, and I can't wait to hear all about it as it's not without adversity or adventure. And on the descent, Gabby was evacuated from Camp 3 with severe hape, Grade 3 and Grade 4 frostbite to both hands, and she spent several weeks in Kathmandu Hospital um, on ICU as well due to her injuries and illness. So a little bit about our guest today. So Gabby's love for exploring began as she was growing up in South Africa, running around like a wild child in the African bush. She's also worked in rural clinics in Tanzania, volunteering in disability centers in Cambodia and working on the front line in South Africa during the COVID pandemic. This sense of adventure has continued into her adult life. And after graduating from the University of Western Australia, she endeavoured to take every opportunity to provide medical assistance wherever needed alongside her adventures, which have simply grown more extreme. Alongside her love for emergency medicine and surgery, mountaineering has become her main interest area. From Kilimanjaro to Everest, she continues to challenge herself and live by the motto, climb your own climb. So welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast, Gabby. Thank you. It's lovely being able to talk to you. And coming to us from sunny Perth today, right? Yeah, a bit rainy and windy Perth, to be completely fair, which is out of the ordinary, but Perth oh. nonetheless. Wow. Well, it's the opposite here. I've got beautiful sunshine shining in through my window as we record this. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty smug then. <laughs> <laughs> You're lucky. So let's, um, let's maybe just like go back to a little bit about yourself. So I've obviously gone through your bio, um, but let, let's have like a little bit of the unofficial version. Like, where are you working now? What are you up to? Um, yeah, tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm Gabby. I'm 25 years old and I'm originally from South Africa. I was born in Johannesburg which is one of the big cities down there. And as a young child, um, I grew up basically on my family's game reserve. So amongst the giraffes and the buffalo and all the antelope. And uh, that's probably where my passion for climbing started. I used to climb these little mountains. We call them copies in South Africa uh, with my grandfather. And that was from as early as I could walk. And as I grew older, the mountains, I suppose, just got bigger and bigger. So at the moment, I'm in Perth, Western Australia, working at Joondalup Health Campus as a doctor. And I undertook medical school both here and then worked in South Africa a little bit uh, before settling here currently. Cool. Great. Yeah, that, that sounds like an amazing childhood growing up on a game reserve. 
Um, so then what first drew you towards mountain it well obviously you, you started off climbing mountains with your granddad but what what drew you towards the bigger mountains like Kilimanjaro and Everest so I suppose that's where the start of the symbiosis between medicine and mountaineering began so I was actually working in a clinic just outside Arusha in Tanzania and I met some doctors that were assisting me in the clinics and they decided that they were going to climb Kilimanjaro and this was something they planned for months and they had all their gear they were ready to set off in two days time and i felt left out so i said sure i'll join not a single ounce of gear with me no training behind it and off we set to attempt kilimanjaro we did it in about six days and i found it quite thrilling it was a challenge it was interesting to to progress through the different uh, environments up the mountain. And I coped quite well with the altitude. Um, and that's probably where the altitude side of climbing began. And after Kilimanjaro, I decided, well, I enjoyed this. I can probably combine it with my career in medicine. So I decided to explore the Himalayas and took myself on the first trip to Nepal and tracked to Everest Base Camp and the first time I saw Everest, I probably thought it's huge, but I'm going to climb it. And uh, so I kept going back to Nepal and gaining more and more experience with ice climbing, severe weather and uh, using the equipment at high altitudes. And eventually I decided, well, it's now or never. Here we go. So I decided to, to take on the queen of all mountains. Yeah, amazing. And I think that's probably similar to a lot of other like extreme or expedition medics that get into this kind of stuff. We're all kind of drawn to the challenge. And it sounds like you coped really well with the altitude as well, which, um, yeah, I think there's a couple of podcasts on Kilimanjaro that we've just done. Um, myself and um, another medic who climbed uh, last year, just chatting through some of our experiences. Um, we climbed in probably, I think, five days. And it was safe to say we probably didn't cope as well with the altitude as you did um so once so you did your base camp trek saw everest you're like yep i'm gonna climb that thing and so then how did you go about you know planning your trip and sort of getting everything together and getting your skills and everything together and then actually getting to um, a position where you're ready to climb everest yeah so it it was definitely a process but i guess that's everything in life it's it always takes a few small steps to get to the overall goal so I began going back to Nepal quite often. Um, sadly, here in Perth, Australia, the biggest mountain we've got is equivalent to a sand dune. So not much altitude here to train on. And so I started training for marathons and uh, trying to get um, all my muscle groups in order to be able to tackle the mountains and then would do the altitude side of things back in Nepal. So by the time I actually went on my first Everest expedition, which was in 2022, I'd already been in Nepal a few times and was quite accustomed to the climate, the culture and the team I'd be climbing with. So I originally decided that I wasn't going to climb Everest in a popular season. So the spring season is when 99% of, of climbers climb and that's in May and April. I decided that I was going to climb in October. Uh, the reason for this is I wanted to avoid overcrowding on the mountain and a few other issues that uh, I'm sure you've gotten into with previous uh, podcast attendees. 
And uh, so that's that was my first attempt on Everest. Logistic-wise, it was a nightmare in winter, very little support. Uh, we had to set up our own ladders through the Kumbu. We were basically breaking the route, um, which is very rare. Uh, often you have a rope fixing team go ahead of you, which wasn't the case. I was alongside my small group of Sherpas and we were equally weighted in terms of, of attempting to break a new route up through to Camp 3 on Everest. Uh, sadly, we were turned around uh, due to bad weather and a silent avalanche quite high up. And we just decided it wouldn't be worth our lives. Uh, so we were treated back to base camp and uh, but defeated. But we decided that we would attempt it again the next year in the spring season. So for me, Everest wasn't quite the linear progression I was expecting. It was a one step back to take two steps forward. But I guess that's the nature of the game. And the priority was keeping everyone safe. And that's what we did. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure you probably took away a lot of learning from that experience of first trying to summit as well, especially if you're having to like fix fix ropes and sort of break the route and everything. It's a very different Everest experience maybe to in the spring season when it's all quite well trodden and there's lots of people around and lots of support. Yeah, that sounds like a actually really good preparation probably for your second attempt, which was May this year, right? So literally only a few months ago. Yeah, so I'd I just got back from the mountain about a month and a half ago. Wow. And are you, fe are you feeling fully recovered or are you sort of still? <laughs> I'm still under a plastic surgeon for my frostbite here in uh, Perth, um, but we're slowly getting back there. I officially have my next climb booked. It hasn't been announced yet, but I will be climbing a little bit smaller than Everest, uh, naturally, but uh, we haven't given up on the climbing quite yet. And are we talking a Himalayan peak or are we talking somewhere else? We're not talking a Himalayan peak. Uh, it's not off the cards for the season next year, but I'll be climbing in a country I've never climbed in before and uh, tackling one of the seven summits. Oh, I love that you're giving us a little teaser about it. That's great. <laughs> cool. Okay, we'll have to follow and see how you get on with that. Um, okay, but let's get back to Everest and then talk us through. You've let's let's. Let's go back to you've arrived at base camp and you're starting your sort of settling in and then acclimatization rotations. Like, what do you remember about you? Yeah. So, um, an average Everest expedition is about two months. I had three weeks leave, uh, nature of being in the medical field. So, uh, I knew that it was going to be quite tight. And uh, for that reason, I had a very, very strong team climbing with me. Uh, all of the clients in the team had climbed 8,000 meters before, uh, quite experienced technical climbers. Some of us were openists by nature. And so our rotation was unlike probably what most climbers would do on Everest. Usually it's a night at camp one, back to base camp, camp one, camp two, base camp, and then touch camp three, back down. For us, we did a night at camp one, two nights at camp two, back down to base camp, and then we had a weather window in three days. So very little rest uh, for myself and some of my team members and a uh, pretty jam-packed in her season. But uh, we were quite lucky that most of us were acclimatized prior to arriving in the pole, whether that was using a hypoxic chamber or climbing uh, alternative peaks in the area. So we were quite lucky in that regard that we had some, some basis of acclimatization before arriving. And then we officially set off on our summit push on the 12th of May up to Camp 2. 
we slept a night in camp two and then progressed up the Latse face to camp three where majority of my team members started using supplemental oxygen. I'd been at the altitude before, was quite comfortable at the altitude. So I progressed up to South Cole, the death zone with no supplemental oxygen and uh, only started using my O2s from about uh, Camp 4, South Cole. Great. Okay. And then um, I understand that you had a little bit of a uh i don't know a hiccup at camp four and so you're in the death zone at this point aren't you and um had to spend an additional well two nights at camp four do you want to just tell us a little bit about that yeah so um we arrived at camp four with the intention of leaving um as normal for a summit push later in the evening usually you arrive about 3 4 p.m sleep for a few hours and then depart between 9 p.m and 11 p.m depending on your team's ability and uh, my Sherpa sadly got frostbite up at Camp 4 while moving tanks around and it was quite bad. Uh, he wasn't feeling quite up to, to the summit and that was fair. Uh, at that point in time, we were just behind the rope fixing team, which meant that it was our team and possibly one or two other teams up at South Cole at that point in time. And it was only myself and another climber in our team that had progressed ahead of the pack and we just decided that it wasn't worth the risk leaving for a summit push with so limited resources in terms of members at that point. So I stayed a first night in the death zone and I was quite grateful at that point that I hadn't used any supplemental oxygen because it did mean I had an additional supply. Uh, which is testament to expect the unexpected on Everest always and um, the second day on on the South Pole, uh, two other team members arrived with the intention of leaving for a summit that day. Uh, then the weather turned. <laughs> so then we had uh, 40 kilometer winds on the summit and off the balcony, which meant a second night at uh, the South Pole in the death zone. And finally, on the third night, we were able to push for a summit. At that point, I had used uh, one bottle of oxygen on exceptionally low flow for the two nights while I was uh, sleeping at the South Pole. And um, just maybe for people who've not been to altitude or who maybe don't quite understand like the death zone, just talk to us a little bit about why it's such a big deal to have to spend so much longer up there for it. <laughs> yeah, so the death zone is classified as the altitude at which human life cannot be sustained. So that's regardless of whether you're on supplemental oxygen or not, uh, essentially above this altitude due to the pressure and the low oxygen, your body's slowly dying. So a typical climber wouldn't like to spend more than 24 hours in the death zone because firstly, you're losing a lot of energy and strength while being up in the death zone. And secondly, should you run out of oxygen, your chances of surviving is very low. Yeah, and I think there's a fair amount of um, deaths on Everest that have happened at Camp 4, actually, and people who've summited get back down to Camp 4, fall asleep in their tent without oxygen and then just never wake up. Um, so, yeah, yeah. it's it's not, not ideal to have to spend another two nights there, but you did it and then you still had some oxygen left and you left for your summit attempt, right? Yes, so um, after two nights sleeping in the death zone, uh, we calculated the oxygen we had knowing that we had emergency bottles stored up at the balcony just above us. Uh, so myself and only one other team member still had the strength um, and the will to push for the summit. So the two of us and um, our two Sherpas who were the most experienced and who we had both climbed with before 
decided that we were fast enough and strong enough to get to the summit and back down again safely with our oxygen uh, requirement. And so we headed off uh, on the evening of the 16th of May. We progressed quite well up to the balcony. Uh, once reaching the balcony, we decided that we weren't going to take any rests all the way up to the summit of Everest. Um, purely because of the number of people that were queued behind us. We were quite lucky that we were both fast climbers and uh, we often found ourselves moving ahead of the pack, which is ideal, especially when there's such a narrow weather window in Everest, um, specifically um, this year and in the 2019 season. And so we made really good time uh, getting up Everest. We were held up probably at Hillary's step uh, behind a team of, of 10 to 20 climbers. That was struggling a little bit, but we officially arrived on the summit um, at about 9.35 a.m. on the 17th of May. Uh, but the, the triumph was a little bit short-lived for me. Uh, so as much as we were able to stay ahead of the pack going up the mountain, we turned around and to our horror, uh, the Hillary Step and South Summit was blocked up as far as we could see. Yeah, And so... We eagerly tried to get down the mountain as fast as possible, but uh, sadly we were held up uh, both on the, just below the summit um, at Hillary Step, South Summit, um, and at the balcony, which um, ultimately meant that I got frostbite. We ran out of oxygen, and uh, by the time we had made it back to the balcony, our emergency oxygen had been used <laughs> by someone else and taken. So all the plans and logistics that we had as a backup and a plan B and a plan C all, all went to nothing on the mountain this year, sadly. Uh, but we did all safely make it back to Camp 4 South Coal. Um, yeah, it's so tough because uh, there's, yeah. there's so much out of your control there, isn't there? It's, it's like you summit yeah. fairly quickly, but when you come back down everybody else is on their way up and then your oxygen runs out and then your emergency oxygen is gone and yeah this is something that we've spoken about before about like oxygen theft on everest um from maybe teams who are not quite as well prepared or don't have the the i don't know funds for extra oxygen etc um but that is yeah really really unfortunate um and then Tell, how, how did you sort of start to realize that maybe your hands were not as they should be? So coming back down through the Hillary step, I mean, I was wearing the same gear I wore during the winter season, which was far colder than the season, regardless of, of it being one of the coldest spring seasons. Um, so I knew my gear wasn't the concern, but uh, coming through the Hillary step, between climbers meant that you were often stagnant for quite a while and holding onto a line because there's quite a bit of pushing and shoving. I'm not the biggest person in the world, um, so I'm usually towered above by my fellow climbers. So often there is a little bit of shoving and I'm hanging on for dear life not to fall into Tibet. Um, so it just meant that not enough movement in my fingers. And at that point, um, our oxygen supply was already quite low um so we were on much lower um supplemental oxygen supplies than we should have been in terms of flow and by the time i, I got to the south summit of of everest i noticed that i was starting to lose sensation in my right hand uh, my dexterity was going and i knew exactly what that meant uh, it's something that we all prepare for as climbers and do everything possible from hand warmers to twinkle twinkle little star while we're climbing but uh, unfortunately, this time there were just too many factors that were out of our control. 
Yeah, and of course, maybe people don't realize it, but um, oxygen is also like hypoxia is a risk yeah. factor for frostbite. Um, so you get back down to camp four. I think I read one of your posts where you kind of stumble into a tent and you all you can say is like, no O's, no O's. <laughs> so no, no oxygen at that point, having run out. No, I, um, I, I did quite uh, gracefully dive on top of four other members into the South Pole tent, begging for oxygen. But uh, needless, needless did I know that they, they were quite low on oxygen as well. Um, I had a member of my team attempt to summit Lotse, who had run out, a team member that, that little did we know, followed us up um, towards the summit, never made it and came back down with no oxygen. So um, unfortunately, there wasn't much uh, assistance in terms of sharing of oxygen at that point, and rightfully so. Uh, so I knew that, you know, time was of the essence. I'd been so high for so long, I, I also knew that uh, Hate and hate would become a reality pretty soon for me. I'd actually suffered hate once before um, at an altitude of about 7,000 meters previously. So I was quite concerned to get as low as possible. But um, sadly, because of the, the overcrowding coming down the mountain, we, we arrived at South Cole quite late. Uh, it took us nearly double the time getting down off the summit than it did to actually reach the summit, which is shocking. And uh, so myself and not my Sherpa, a, a different Sherpa decided that uh, we were going to attempt to descend to Camp 3 in the dark, which is not ideal on Everest ever. But um, there's a window for frostbites and I knew that I needed to get back to a hospital um, in time for that window, specifically for thrombolysis. So um, we, we proceeded down the mountain. Sadly, the Sherpa wasn't in great shape either, bless his soul. He did everything he could, but at uh, one point we were separated and um, it became every man for himself on the mountain. Uh, we did come across, sadly, a fellow climber that had passed early in the day, um, linked onto the line. So it, it was it was quite a dangerous day on Everest, uh, to be fair. Uh, very cold, uh, lots of people and not enough oxygen, clearly. And uh, I finally saw the lights of Camp 3. This must have been about 3 a.m. in the morning. To be fair, at that point, I wasn't very cognizant of what was occurring around me. Um, I was hallucinating to some point, and uh, I crawled into to the tent at Camp 3, and that's pretty much the last I remember. Uh, I know that I had a fellow summit climber arrive in the tent a few hours later, uh, he was very helpful in uh, assisting me to use my Garmin device. And, and all I can remember is uh, shouting at my poor fellow teammate that he needed to push the SOS button. But uh, bless his soul, he was suffering from haste as well and was running around barefoot outside the tent. So <laughs> wasn't much oh, no. assistance at that point. No. Um, but eventually we managed to push the button that everyone dreads pushing on Everest. Um, but uh, sometimes you do have to just bury your ego and do what's best for yourself and your team members um, because things do turn south pretty quickly on the mountain. Yeah, definitely. And so how long would you have been sort of awake for uh, when you got back to Camp 3? Um, at that point, it would have been well over 27, 28 hours um, from the summit push. Uh, and that would have been consistent climbing. When I arrived at South Cole, we perhaps had 10 minutes of just having a sip of water, 
we had run out of food um, up at Camp 4 and uh, we had little energy to boil more water. So I was severely dehydrated, um, lack of nourishment heading down to Camp 3. And when we did get to Camp 3, I wasn't able to tolerate much fluid regardless. Um, so it, it was a long 28 hours at that. Yeah. Wow. And then, um, so I th was it a Garmin InReach device that you had? Yeah. Yeah. My good old faithful Garmin InReach Mini. Yeah, and so was there, had you guys talked about, you know, if one of us needs to come off the mountain, this is how we're going to do it? Um, not to that extent. Um, the climbers in my team were all international climbers um, from Europe, from Canada, uh, from India and the UK. So we hadn't climbed together before. Uh, myself and this other climber had, had quite a good bond. Um, regardless of talking, we probably knew what the other person would have liked um, should we ever get into a situation that was dire. And um, my uh, partner and my family at that point uh, kicked in and, and they pretty much organised the rescue from across the ocean. Uh, so I'm very grateful for them. But wow. it, it is something that you need to be aware of when, when you're climbing Everest. There's a chance that you won't come home. Yeah. And ha had you talked about that with your family and your partner? My poor family is so over Everest. After the first attempt, I think uh, my poor father was in absolute shock when I said, Dad, I'm going back. My poor mother didn't even know. I decided not even to tell her. So she was the one who actually received the rescue call and uh, it went as follows. Um, Hi, uh, your daughter's just sent off an SOS call from Camp 3 on Everest. No, no, my daughter's not on Everest. She's in Perth in the ED. She's not on Everest. So um, I, I kept it pretty quiet. <laughs> um, but um, yes, uh, there were discussions that were had about um, what should happen and what I would like to happen if things uh, did turn the wrong way while climbing. Yeah, oh my gosh, your poor mum. But I mean, yeah, maybe it's better to be in the dark in some ways because then you're not worrying, are you? But um, so you push the SOS button. The just for anyone who doesn't know what a Garmin InReach device is, it's um, like a little GPS device that has sometimes has a keyboard. Sometimes if you get the mini one, it doesn't have a keyboard um, that essentially sends off a GPS um, SOS signal to I don't know some some control room somewhere for Garmin, and then they phone your designated contact uh which is what happened for you isn't it and then your family sort of organized this quite incredible rescue from what i understand because camp three is high and they managed to get a helicopter up there right yeah so um i'll go down as one of the highest rescues on everest ever um you have to long line to rescue from camp three which essentially means that uh, the helicopter doesn't land they send down this rope um hovering above wherever you're located in the camp. Uh, you connect that to your harness and hope that the harness holds uh, because then you, you sent off flying through the Himalayan sky um, with little protection all the way down to base camp where they can officially assess you and put you in the heli and send you to Kathmandu for tertiary care. Do you remember much of that? <laughs> I do, actually. I uh, remember uh, shouting again, Shane, at my poor uh, tent mate that he put my boots on the wrong way. And um, then stumbling out of the tent and trying to connect my own harness um, very unsuccessfully with my frostbitten fingers. 
And uh, before I knew it, I was flying uh, down to base camp. The view was extraordinary, but um, I was quite concerned knowing the shape that I was in. And um, I was aware that it wasn't looking great. So very eager to see the, the bright colored tent city of Everest base camp and uh, to see my team manager waiting for me, waving <laughs> as I landed on the helipad. Yeah, wow. Um, and were you sort of aware that you developed a bit of hape at this point as well as the frostbite or not Not so much? A hundred percent. I was already uh, short of breath uh, about halfway between camp four and camp three. Um, I did have a kumbu cough. Um, for those that don't know what that is, it's essentially due to the exposure of dry air that irritates your lungs, causing this dry, hard barking cough. Um, but I did knew that it had changed from a kumbu cough to something a little bit more serious um, once I officially had no oxygen left. Um, and that kept getting worse. Um, I was struggling in terms of how quickly I was able to perform tasks on the mountains. So I did know there was an element of haste, um, mm. but I'm quite stubborn minded. And I, I was able to just keep putting one foot in front of the other to get down to camp. Yeah. And I guess the other thing I was thinking about as well is if you're attached to a line, um, and you're having to deal with sort of carabiners and jumars and all of this sort of stuff, and you've got frostbitten fingers, that must get really, really difficult. Yeah, I, I became quite slow um, between uh, camp four and camp three, and I suppose that's why um, my fellow Sherpa did end up having to go ahead. Uh, sometimes it, it is in their best interest to, um, you know, it is life and death on the mountain, but I, I was... I was uh, very, very slow in terms of changing from one safety line to another safety line. Sometimes I was sitting down for 20 to 25 minutes, um, just catching my breath to be able to reconnect to another line um, or traversing past other climbers um, was, a, it was a challenge. And uh, even trying to keep balance, um, something that comes very easy to me in the mountains became quite a challenge. And how much insight did you have at that point were, were you sort of were you just surviving and were you like oh okay i'm a bit slower than normal but or were you like okay this is really serious like this is not good i don't think i allowed myself to think um that it was as serious as it was until i fell into the camp three tent um at that point i was so focused on just getting there uh, being quite an experienced climber being on everest before i knew that um you know, you have to keep moving and uh, you have to keep focused on the task because if you do allow your mind to wander, especially with haste, you never know where you're going to end up. Um, mm. There's stories of climbers jumping off mountains and, um, you know, taking taking their summit suits off. So it, it was quite a daunting task. It's task in the sense that I wasn't just having to perform, you know, the safety measures to get down, but it was almost like I was having to corral my brain into staying focused on what I was actually doing. Uh, once I got to camp three, it was probably at that point where I started doing, you know, as, doc as doctors, we tend to do this, this risk calculation. And I started adding all these factors up about how long I haven't had oxygen, how bad my fingers were, um how bad my saturation was at that point and um i knew that it wasn't looking good and um what I was your believed... saturation at first <laughs> what was your oxygen um, so my saturation on returning to south coal was at 70 percent and, um, and was that hard to measure if you had frostbitten fingers as well 
Yeah, so they measured it on my, my good hand. And we say good hand. I've had grade two frostbite, but on the good hand, um, yeah. my sets were, were measured um, with some assistance. Um, but at that point, I'd only been out of oxygen for maybe four or five hours, and um, I still had a long road ahead. Um, so I can only imagine what it must have been when I, when I was lying in the camp at uh, Camp 3. And just out of interest as well, had you seen your fingers? Because I'm imagining they were gloved yeah. for most of this. Yeah, so when I arrived at South Cole and um, all my teammates were congratulating my fellow climber, none of them at that point had thought I summited. And so I kept saying, I've got no oxygen and my fingers are blue. And I hadn't actually looked at them, but I knew I knew that they were frostbitten. And uh, one of the climbers um, exclaimed, Gabby, don't be so dramatic. Just take the gloves off and look at them. And I said, I don't want to look. I don't want to look. And I was closing my eyes and he pulled the gloves off and it just went silent in the tent. And then he put the glove back on and he said, it's not that bad. <laughs> but in the highest tone voice there was, and then briskly left the tent. Um, so I didn't have to face me after that. Um, and then I so you were yeah, like, it's, it's pretty bad. <laughs> it's, it's bad. <laughs> so I, I eventually did take the gloves off um, to put a, a second hand warmer in. And at that point, um, you know, they were they were pretty cyanosed. Um, they were starting to swell, um, as your fingers do with frostbite. Um, and I had no sensation in the middle digit whatsoever on my right hand. So I knew it was bad. And then I just decided I wasn't going to look at it again. Because every time I looked at it, I panicked. So, you know, if you don't see it, it's not there. So. Yeah, yeah. And it's that I, I, I just corralling your mind, like you said, like just focus yeah. on surviving, focus on getting down, focus on getting there. Like, don't think about it. Just. Yeah. yeah. So, so in the, at Camp 3, uh, it was the, the second time that the hand was ungloved by um, the Sherpa that I climbed with me before. And uh, he, he took the gloves off and he looked at it and I was I had my eyes closed and he said, doctor, you need a doctor. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I knew it was pretty bad at that point if the Sherpas were getting concerned considering they get quite bad frost nip. Yeah, yeah, if they're worried, you definitely want to be worried. And then <laughs> yeah. just we, we kind of spoke about it just before we started recording, but uh, obviously a lot of your team and a lot of teams around you knew that you were a doctor. Um, what sort of, did, did you have queries? Did you have things you had to deal with? Did people come with you with problems? And, and what sort of things did you have to deal with? Oh, 100%. I think it was busier than my average ED shift here in Perth, <laughs> my tent. Um, I, I suppose the most, the, the, the common things on, on Everest is obviously altitude sickness and the start thereof. Um, most people start getting a headache at base camp and that just progressively gets worse the higher you climb. So quite a bit of altitude sickness. Uh, we had an outbreak of COVID, uh, which started actually low on the mountain at about Namche Bazaar. Um, and climbers go back there to relax and recover between rotations. So consequently, they were bringing the COVID back. Um, and then we had some severe cases of bronchitis or respiratory illnesses. Um, we had some of our Sherpas get quite bad knee injuries and back injuries um, higher up on the mountain. Um, so it, it, it was a good range. It was it was consistently busy to say the least. Yeah and it must be so hard when everybody's coughing anyway because of sort of kumbu cough um, to exactly, then yeah. try and figure out who's got COVID, who's just got kumbu cough. 
It is. And um, I suppose it was just like the COVID pandemic in the sense that someone coughed in the tent and you'd slowly scoot your chair to the other side of the tent in concern of getting sick yourself. Uh, but we did have confirmed cases of COVID tested. Um, but um, luckily I, in my team, it, it was a majority just Kungu cough and the odd cases of a viral infection, whether that was flu or who knows, um, up on that mountain. Uh, but yeah, it, it is quite difficult because 90% of you are coughing um, after a rotation regardless. And um, I, was it tricky in terms of you, you weren't there as a doctor, were you, you were there as a climber, um, to sort of uh, square that with your professional obligation to help your fellow climbers? Yeah, I, I suppose Everest is a bit of a fine line between duty of care and self-care um, to the extreme measure. Um, I did encounter quite a few uh, sick climbers, especially higher up on the mountain, and consequently one of them didn't make it. Um, but there is unfortunately a limit as to what you can do um, as a doctor on the mountain. Uh, first and foremost, you are there to keep yourself safe um, and secondary your teammates and after that other climbers on the mountain. I didn't encounter anyone up to the summit, uh, luckily, because I do believe that we would have stopped to assist regardless and abandoned our summit push, but it was on the way down. And it, it is quite difficult, you know, uh, ethically and, and legally to considering you working outside of your, your um, associated registration country. Um, but Everest seems to have a set of rules of her own. And uh, I suppose if you don't help, no one's, no one's quite going to step up and do it for you from a medical standpoint. Yeah, and I think what you said there is really important in terms of, you know, you look after yourself first uh, and then your team and then anybody else who might need your help. Um, and I think you mentioned about uh, when you're coming down from Camp 4 to Camp 3, about your Sherpa going ahead. Um, and you, I think, were very keen to not put anybody else in danger or to like risk anybody else's lives um, as, as part of your climb. Um, do you want to just maybe just talk through your thinking on that? Yeah, look, I mean, it is always difficult, um, especially when you're alone on Everest, um, regardless for how long that period of time is. It's a big mountain and it's a dangerous mountain. And you know that being left is the first step to things going very south very quickly. Um, in defense of, of the Sherpa that I was with, um, we had a very good relationship and um you know he did say look he's got he's going to have to go ahead um he's not feeling well he's not doing well and you know it was it was always my intention to never allow my ego or um fear to get the better of me in terms of allowing it to dictate um you know the lives of others on the mountain so it, it was quite a, a diplomatic and business-like agreement that was had in the sense that, you know, Gabs are not doing well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead, you know, uh, be safe, sister. And uh, that was it. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's quite, quite a bit of controversy around this on Everest in particular, in terms of people leaving others on the mountain and uh, walking over, you know, dying bodies or people, um, especially now with the K2 season. I was just going to say, um, yeah, with that yeah. massive sort of kick up the so, happened about that. 
I think for me it's very black and white um, in the sense that, you know, human life and preservation thereof comes above any achievement or accolade that you're working towards. Mm. So um, th that's basically what my team knew and that's what the Sherpa knew. And so it, it was quite a comfortable decision to allow him to go ahead um, and leave me behind at that point. Yeah, and like you said, it's kind of every every man for himself at some point on a very dangerous mountain where, yeah, it, it, you you wouldn't want to be endangering other people's lives just to achieve your climb sort of thing. That's not worth it, no. Um, and then uh, you were self-sufficient as well. And, well, not self-sufficient, but you, you were self-sufficient in terms of your rescue. You weren't expecting Sherpas to sort of carry you down or anything like that. It was kind of, right, no, I'm going to push my SOS button and, you know, hopefully help is going to come. Yeah, um, you know, ego does play a role on Everest and it's becoming a very prominent um, feature in terms of climbers on, on the big 8,000 metre mountains. And, you know, it, it is a bit of an ego blow um, to have to push that button. Everyone wants to descend um, on their own accord, uh, not using a heli. But, you know, I made that calculated decision that, if I was to have to repel with frostbitten fingers down the Lotse face, it would probably mean, you know, either I'd be slipping and hurting someone else um, or just doing it exceptionally slow, therefore putting other climbers coming up at risk. Um, and, and it just, it wasn't at that point a risk that I was willing to take. And um, there was sadly actually discussion the morning of my rescue and I remember bits, bits and pieces of it because originally the weather wasn't actually good enough uh, to perform the rescue. And I remember sitting there and, and thinking, you know, I'm not going to descend. Um, it's not going to be safe for, for my Sherpas, my brothers on the mountain, who had then become my family. It wasn't going to be safe for the other climbers around me. So I'd mentally made the decision that if a heli wasn't able to safely, keyword safely, come and fetch me from Camp 3, um, I was going to stay there and I knew the consequences of that as well. Tough decisions to have to think about definitely when you're 25 and you're, you've got your whole life ahead of you. It's yeah, mind blowing um, to have to face your own death actually um, on the mountain. But I guess that's kind of part of the part of the attraction in some ways of like these are dangerous these are big challenges this is like something you might not come back from it's probably part of the adventure for you um although we do hope most adventures don't end in in helicopter rescues and icu stays but um <laughs> but but i i'm guessing that you know if for any mountaineer we know the risks like that that that's part of the package isn't it yeah it's it's all part of the game everyone knows the risks when you sign up for everest yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so you were rescued from one, one, probably one of the highest rescues on Everest, Camp 3. Um, I, I don't think I've heard of any helicopters getting much higher than that. Um, and taken down to Everest ER at base camp, right? And then they kind of have a look at you, repackage you maybe, and then get you on a helicopter to Kathmandu. Yeah, I was actually good mates with uh, the docs down at Everest ER and... Um... I remember like sitting down and then looking at me and the first question I was asked was, so did you make it? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> they were just all too happy uh, to hear that I finally summited um, one of the, the big mountains on my list. And uh, after that, it was, 
you know, as much management as you can do at Everest. You can't really warm the fingers properly um, because of the risk of refrosting them on your way back to Nukla. Um, so it was some aspirin, some ibuprofen, and um, a few memorable pictures of all the doctors and the rescue team um, who had achieved an incredible thing in their own right. You know, they were part of a, a historical rescue that um, we were all too grateful for. And um, after that, it was pretty much up into a helicopter to Lukla. Uh, we hit some pretty bad weather while, while in Lukla, so we couldn't take off immediately to head to Kathmandu. Um, after a delay of about 30 minutes, where I proceeded to phone my parents and I was going to say, <laughs> when you speak to your family, they must be so worried. <laughs> So I picked up the phone and phoned my mum and dad on FaceTime and I was smiling and I must have looked atrocious because the, the face that my mother pulled when she first saw me was one of horror. But I hadn't seen myself for about three weeks at that point. You know, I was sunburned, windburned, typical kiss of the mountain face. And um, I said to my dad, Dad, you and mom don't have to come to Kathmandu. I'm going to be perfectly fine. I'm going to go to Kathmandu, they're going to cut off this finger and I'm going to be back at work on Monday and my shift starts at 8am. I've let the hospital know that I'll be there, so don't worry, it's going to be a waste of you to come to Kathmandu. I'm perfectly fine. I'm, I'm excited to get back to work. I wasn't back at work on Monday or the following Monday or the Monday after that. No, um, wow. <laughs> but uh I did then eventually catch a helicopter to Kathmandu and um, I felt like quite a celebrity. I had a, an ambulance waiting for me on the, on the airstrip uh, to load me up and take me to Hams Hospital, which is the original point of care from any mountain rescues um, in Kathmandu. Wow. And I love your just like brutality about, don't worry, they're just going to chop this finger off and then I'm going to go back to work and it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a very doctor point of view, actually. We've got, you know, it's quite black sense of humour, really, haven't we, in the medical community? And yeah, that's probably just like, yeah, chop it off. Let's go back to work. Um, <laughs> did did it occur to you? Because obviously, fingers are quite important in medicine. Um, in terms of, I don't know, doing cannulas or examinations. You know, even feeling a pulse and stuff like that. Um, did did any of those thoughts go through your head about like, is this going to affect my ability to work? I suppose that was the first time that it actually hit home um, and, and it wasn't actually in Lukla, it was once I was in the ED um, at Ham's Hospital and um, this lovely nurse came up to me and, and asked me if she could do a cannula and she proceeded to explain the whole procedure to me through and through and pretty much would have aced her oskies. And I sat there and I thought for a moment, well, how am I going to do that now? How, how, am I, how am I going to put cannulas in my patients? And she left the, the outer shell of this cannula on my bed when she walked away. And I remember picking it up with my left hand and starting to feel what it would feel like having to cannulate someone with, with my non-dominant hand. And um, I, I suppose that's when the fear really kicked in because I, I knew that what originally was came quite easy for me in day-to-day -day work which would be quite a challenge going forward and then um i think at this point in ed you were still quite unwell um unwarranted sort of medical emergency calls to to a and e yeah. um what was your experience as a patient <laughs> 
it's difficult being a patient. I don't think I'm a very good patient at that. Um, I had two med calls in ED. They were really struggling in terms of my blood pressure. Um, at one point, they were considering, you know, putting me on an aramine infusion. And um, it, it was quite a difficult experience because, you know, the alarm bells go off and I'm linked to a monitor and I'm watching the monitor and I can see my own vitals and I know exactly what's happening and what I would do in the situation. But you know, you can't do anything because you're lying there at that point. My hands were bandaged up like boxing gloves and so were my feet. So it, it's quite a frightening situation to be fair. But I take my hats off to, to the doctors that looked after me. I had a great ICU um, physician and uh, a lovely plastic surgeon and respiratory consultant that, you know, understood that, you know, I'm from the medical field and it's, it's as frightening for us as it is for everyone, perhaps even more frightening. And uh, they handled it quite well. Yeah, I think sometimes there's a tendency to, when, definitely when I've had sort of doctors who are patients and sort of things, to maybe under explain things or assume that there's a lot more knowledge there than there might be, you know, even though maybe, maybe your patients like, um, you know, a, a renal physician or something, they may not know the ins and outs of whatever their condition is that they've come in with. But I think we tend to assume that they do. Um, and then we kind of maybe think there's a little bit of a luxury of under explaining things or, yeah, like not, maybe not communicating things as well as we maybe would with as much thought for for patients who aren't medical. Um, and yeah, and, and underestimating how scary it can be, even if you are a doctor, um, and it's probably more scary because you know the consequences a little bit more. That must be such a bizarre experience watching your vitals go downhill and then thinking, oh God, like I need a fluid bolus, stat. Uh, <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, so you ended up on ITU with a femoral line. Um, you, didn't, you didn't get presses in the end, I take it? Um, I got thrombolized in the cath lab. Um, and then they ran the infusion through overnight. Luckily, my blood pressure decided that it was going to behave a little bit. Um, fluid responsiveness was perfect. So um, I'm happy for that. Um, but um, once once arriving in the ICU, I guess it posed a new set of, of concerns. I was bleeding quite badly from um, the multiple blood thinners and um, they were concerned. Um, obviously about that, my HB dropping and uh, consequently, you know, my HAPE wasn't improving either. And so I was on high flow oxygen and it was quite a scary experience to be fair. And um, in terms of the kind of emergency calls you had and, and probably being on ITU as well, I always kind of wonder for patients do we talk to them enough or are we kind of too focused on fixing them um, and we, we neglect to actually explain things? What What do you think? Um, look, I, I think it's, it's probably difficult to judge for me in the sense that, you know, from ED to the cath lab, from cath lab to ICU, all very quick decisions. Um, I was outside the 24-hour window to getting thrombolysis um, and so, you know, it kind of, we were waiting for a CT angio of the finger and it wasn't happening. They were struggling to get a line into me. Um, and, you know, I remember the plastic surgeon basically walking up to me and saying, Gabby, you need to sign this paper um, for thrombolysis. And obviously it was a consent form um, because otherwise you're going to lose this finger. 
And so, you know, that was probably the best way um, to handle it with me at that point in time. I think if I was given too many options or a long-winded explanation, it probably would have scared me even more. And I would have probably started thinking about all the contraindications I had or, you know, the risks of, of undergoing the procedure. So perhaps it wasn't the worst thing in the world. Um, yeah, perhaps, in you know, it's adapting your communication and what you tell people for, for yeah. the situation, isn't it? And I think if you were, you know, in that kind of emergency slash you're quite unwell um, situation, you probably don't want to be overloaded with information. It's like, right, tell me what you, what you the expert, think I should do. Okay, great. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, after the fact, once I was up to the acute medical ward and I, I finally had time to process everything that was happening, you know, the ICU doctors did come up and explain, you know, this is what we gave you, this is what we were on, because, you know, you lie there and you've got all these bags attached to you and multiple lines everywhere. Um, and perhaps they handled it the way that, you know, I would like to handle it in the future from an ED perspective. You know, if, if it's an acute concern, just get the job done. Um, but then don't forget to go back when things have calmed down and, and explained and debriefed what's just happened. Um, because often these patients get bombarded with multiple doctors arriving, possibly for a med call or a STEMI call, or whatever it may be. Um, and we're all quite busy in that moment, but perhaps afterwards we just need to stop and be like, this is what's happened um, and this is what we've done for you. Yeah, I think that's a really great little takeaway point for anyone listening who maybe is in those situations. Um, I heard something on a, on another podcast actually about uh, a little tip, uh, which which was when you do have some sort of met call or resource emergency, etc., um, to just take ten seconds to go to the head of the bed, introduce yourself to your patient, say I'm going to look after you. Things are going to get really busy for a couple of minutes, but I'm going to come back and explain it to you afterwards. Um, so then, I don't know, just ten seconds. It's going to be okay. We're going to look after you. Um, I'm not going to be able to talk to you much, but. I will come back afterwards and, talk and explain things. I think that would mean a lot um, if it was me as the patient anyway. Like, okay, cool, crack on. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Okay, so um, before we get too into the hospital stuff, because I'm sure that I would love to talk about it all day, but there's plenty of sort of non-hospital medics who listen to the podcast as well, so we can't we can't sort of get too into that. Um, what do you think your What do you think your main learning points were from this whole experience? Um. Look, I, I always say that mountains are probably better teachers than any school or university degree or course could give you. Um, for me, I guess it comes back to, you know, the overall motto that I've lived by, which is climb your own climb. And that was probably highlighted um, during the Everest season this, this year. You know, there's so many factors, there's logistic concerns, there's other people, there's, you know, all the controversial aspects of Everest itself you know, the dangers, but, you know, you just got to stay focused on what your goal is and who you are and the decisions that you make and focus on taking a step in the right direction and the direction that you want to take it in, not the direction that, you know, your team manager or an alternative climber wants to take. Um, because at the end of the day, you need to live with those decisions. So uh, climb your own climb, regardless of whether it's a literal or figurative mountain, stay true to what your goal is and what you want to achieve and how you want to achieve that. 
Yeah, I think that's a great place to sort of wrap things up on. Um, so you've already alluded to maybe what the next challenge is. And I've got to ask if it's one of the seven summits, is, are you tempted to go for the other five? Yeah, um, I'm well on my way. So um, I oh, might four, as well actually, isn't it? Yeah, you've done Killy already. Yeah. Yeah. So so completing, completing the task will probably be the, the next step. Um, I am going to take it slowly. Um, it's the fingers are still a little bit like having rain outs. They kind of go blue occasionally when you don't want them to. Um, so we'll be taking it nice and slow and doing it just within my physical capacity at the moment. Um, but there's still lots to come. Yeah, fantastic. Well, going to stay tuned. And um, Gabby, you've got uh, an Instagram account called Adventure Medico, right? Um, so I'm sure we can follow your your adventures on there. Um, and is, is there anything else that you want to sort of mention or any sort of thank yous to throw out there? Because I know there's a lot of different people involved in your rescue and getting you home safely. I think I've thanked everyone beyond what I could possibly thank them. And that will never be enough um, for saving my life. But it's been an honor being on the show and having a chat with you. Um, I love the podcast and very excited to listen more. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it's been really cool chatting to you. And yeah, we'll we'll keep, keep an eye out for your next adventures. And then maybe we can have a chat after your, uh, your next summit, which I'm sure you will complete <laughs> successfully. Um, all right. Thank you so much for your time, Gabby. Um, and we're going to leave it there. Lots more inspirational, motivational content on the website. And of course, on the other podcasts, uh, if you're getting sick of my voice, then there's plenty of other podcasts to listen to as well. Um, and stay tuned for more in the Everest mini series. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.